and welcome back to Modern World History. Today we are going to talk about the Americas and European discovery of them, quote unquote. Now when your parents were in school, certainly when I was in school, modern world history and often U.S. history as well usually began around 1492 when the Italian whose name actually was Cristoforo Colon, but we know him as Christopher Columbus, discovered, quote unquote, America. Uh, even today, typical histories of America tend to consider the moment of Columbus's landing on October 12th of 1492 to be a significant turning point, and in many ways it was, as we'll see. Now, some people consider Columbus to have been a heroic explorer, while others regard him as a monster and accuse him of deliberate genocide. Uh, European contact with the Americas was a momentous event, uh, but the actual story is a little bit more complicated than it's usually depicted. So in this chapter, we will add some detail to the traditional stories of the conquest and colonization of the so-called New World. So one of the most important things to know is that in 1500, plus or minus a few years, uh, the populations of Europe and Africa and the Americas were quite similar. European and Asian populations had uh, substantially recovered by that time from the plagues of the previous two centuries and were on the rise. Uh, continental Asia, of course, dominated. China led the world with 125 million people, uh, followed by India with about 90 million. Europe and Africa each had probably about 80 million people, and the Americas probably had a total population around 65 to 80 million as well. It's important to understand that on the eve of Europe's first encounter with the Americas, the populations of all these regions, of all these continents, was really very similar. Uh, and that's important because this demographic parity changed very quickly, as we're about to see. So as I described a little bit in the introduction, the people living in the Americas had been separated from uh, Eurasia for nearly 12,000 years since the end of the last ice age. During this period, Native Americans experienced their own agricultural revolution uh, at the same time that Africans and Europeans and Asians did. But instead of domesticating cattle and horses and sheep and goats and pigs and chickens, which were not native to the Americas, they developed certain plants, uh, actually creating three of the world's current top five staple crops, corn, cassava, and potatoes, as well as additional important crops such as hot peppers, tomatoes, beans, cocoa, and tobacco. Uh, reliable, storable staple food supplies are a necessary precondition for long-term settlement and for population growth. In other words, for the creation of cities. And like the Europeans, Africans, and Asians, once they had created a reliable food supply, American natives also built remarkable cities, especially in Central and South America. From present-day Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula, south through Guatemala, for example, the Maya developed a complex society which reached its most intense flourishing during their classic period from about 250 to 900 in the Common Era. 
however, by the time the Spanish arrived, the Maya were living in more separated, independent city-states. Seemingly having abandoned the urge to live in big societies, in big cities, and having walked away from some of their most impressive temples and structures, such as uh, Chichen Itza in the Yucatan. Uh, and this led originally to an interpretation that the original society had suffered a collapse sometime around uh, 900 due to either the feuding among these separate cities or to some type of agricultural collapse. Uh, however, more extensive research done more recently using new technologies has uh, revealed new discoveries about the Mayan city-states uh, during that classic era. Um, they found new buildings, they've discovered new agricultural techniques, and they believe that uh, the culture was more densely populated than had previously uh, been believed to be. Um, now, we've heard a lot um, in recent years about Mayan uh, mathematics and Mayan astronomy, uh, and they were certainly more advanced in their uh, in both their mathematics and their astronomy than the Europeans at that time. Uh, their religious beliefs uh, included a renovation of their temples every 60 years. And so they built calendars to tell them when that was going to happen. And one of the famous carved stone calendars that was used to uh, calculate the precise time for this renovation and for other key ceremonies uh, ended on December 21st, uh, 2012, which led many people to believe that the Maya had predicted the end of the world. Uh, in reality, it seems that the astronomers had just run out of room on that particular calendar. The Olmecs and possibly the Maya, the Maya or another society um, also built the structures of Teotihuacan uh, between 100 BCE and 750 in the Common Era. Uh, near this city, the twin uh, Aztec or Mexica Triple Alliance capitals of Tenochtitlan and Texcoco, built in the uh, 1320s in the Valley of Mexico, each had more than 200,000 inhabitants when they were first encountered by the Spanish, which made them as large as Paris or Milan, Europe's most populous cities at the time. Uh, Tenochtitlan was built on an island in Lake Texcoco and was connected to the lakeshore by a series of causeways. Uh, the urban Aztecs had a lot of people to feed. They surrounded their island capital of Tenochtitlan with raised planting beds called chinampas on floating platforms built on the lake. Uh, and this technique allowed the Aztec farmers to carefully control soil fertility and water. Uh, the Aztecs were so concerned about the quality of the water that they created a dike across the lake that separated the fresh water around their city from the salty, brackish water of the main lake to the east. Uh, and they drank water brought into the city via an aqueduct from springs in the hills that overlooked the lake. The Aztecs were able to support six people per acre using these chinampas in the 15th century. By comparison, Chinese intensive rice farming, the most successful agricultural technique known in Europe or Asia, supported only about one person per acre at the same time. So Aztec agriculture was six times better. Tiwanaku, 
located uh, near the shores of Lake Titicaca in what's now the Bolivian Highlands, um, was built about 3,500 years ago. Its 30,000 inhabitants developed a farming technique called flooded raised field agriculture, and they covered the hills around the lake with walled terraces. Uh, centuries later, the Incas maintained and expanded um, by thousands of square miles these terraced farms throughout the Andes uh, to achieve a level of agricultural production similar to that of the Aztecs. Uh, for example, surrounding Lake Titicaca in Bolivia, there are terraces rising from the lakeside, and the lake is at an elevation of 12,500 feet. Um, and dotting the eastern slopes of the Andes, were cities like the Inca capital at Cusco uh, and its nearby towns and villages, which were also surrounded by terraced farms, uh, many of which are still being used today. These terraces were not only built and irrigated by hand at these extremely high altitudes, but guano, bird manure from coastal islands hundreds of miles away, was carried on the well-built Inca roads to fertilize these Andean farms. Many of these native cities had been hidden and their buildings and terraces um, torn apart by rainforest trees over the last five centuries. Um, Machu Picchu, a smaller settlement located on a mountain peak about 60 miles from Cusco, was only discovered by Westerners in 1911. The fact that it, been, it had been undiscovered by the Spanish provides a clearer picture of how the Inca organized their settlements. Uh, with terraces for agriculture and buildings made of seamless stonework using large blocks of carved rock, uh, which was far superior to European masonry at the time. The natives of uh, North America also settled in complex societies in a number of regions, uh, based mainly on the cultivation of corn and wild rice and squash and pumpkins, um, and on managing the environment to promote the success of game animals that they hunted. Uh, the traditional uh, United States and Canadian Thanksgiving dinners uh, celebrate the native foods of North America, including the turkey. Along the, Missis the Mississippi River and its tributaries, uh, indigenous people lived mostly in villages, but occasionally gathered into cities and built mounds like those found at the site we call Cahokia. Uh, Algonquin and Iroquois were also semi-sedentary people uh, living in small villages throughout what's now upstate New York and southern Quebec and Ontario. By the time that they contacted um, the Europeans, the Iroquois had formed a confederacy of five major tribes. Um, the Ojibwe and Dakota were also uh, semi-sedentary, living in settlements in the Western Great Lakes region and on the edge of the Northern Great Plains. Of course, all of this agriculture and uh, city building and civilization was happening in the Americas without anybody in Europe or Asia or Africa knowing anything about it. Uh, although it is not true that everybody believed the world was flat until Columbus came along. Uh, some Europeans were unclear about the actual size of the Earth, um, and definitely about the existence of the American continents and the Pacific Ocean uh, behind them. Uh, but not all Europeans were unaware that there was something valuable across the Atlantic. It's important to realize that European exploration did not begin with Columbus. 
uh, around the year 1000, 500 years before the Italian explorer set out to discover a new trade route to Asia for Spain, Norse explorers from Europe and Iceland had established a presence on Greenland. The Greenland colony lasted for 400 years and was a base for exploration and settlement even further west. Leif Erikson, the son of the Greenland colony's leader, Eric the Red, uh, began a colony in what is now northern Newfoundland in Canada. Uh, for a long time, historians believed that Scandinavian claims about a North American colony called Vinland were nothing more than patriotic folktales. But in the 1960s and 1970s, archaeologists uh, discovered and explored a site called Lance Almedo uh, that dates to about 1000 CE, the exact time that the stories said the Vikings were here. Uh, the settlement was more than just a fishing camp. The eight buildings include a blacksmith's shop and a spinning room with artifacts that suggest that women lived there and wove cloth for their families. The Viking stories also tell of the settlers trading milk with the local natives, uh, which suggests that they brought cattle, which you wouldn't bring on Viking sailing ships across the North Atlantic unless you were planning to stay a while. So why didn't this last? Well, the Little Ice Age was a period of global cooling that hit the North Atlantic particularly hard, beginning around the 1430s. Sailing became increasingly dangerous, and as the agricultural season was cut short by longer and more severe winters, the Greenland colony was abandoned in the early 1400s. And without a base in Greenland, the Vikings were unable to sustain a North American colony. Uh, they also faced strenuous opposition from the natives, who they called Skraelings, uh, who according to the Viking sagas were fierce warriors. Uh, this map, made in Iceland in 1570, identifies the area at the latitude of Newfoundland as Skrælingaland. Uh, north of that is Markland, the land of forests, and then Helleland, the land of flat stones, and then Greenland. Uh, on a more recent map of Greenland from 1747, you can see the names of old Viking settlements, uh, as well as a channel that they believed had once cut through the island of Greenland. Uh, it wasn't really there. Uh, the text on the map reads, it is said that these straits were formerly passable, but are now shut up with ice. Uh, and on both sides of Greenland, the map specifically says, the coast is for the most part inaccessible now by reason of floating and fixed mountains of ice. Now, textbooks tend to stress uh, European interest in gold and silver. And finding precious metals was very important to explorers like the conquistadors. But we shouldn't underestimate Europeans' fear of famine, especially during the Little Ice Age. Uh, even before Columbus's voyage, Basque and Portuguese fishermen were regularly visiting the Grand Banks off the coast of Newfoundland to catch cod. A 1497 account by Giovanni Caboto, another Italian explorer, who had anglicized his name to John Cabot and was sailing for Britain. Um, Cabot claimed that the cod were so plentiful on the coast of North America that European fishermen could almost walk from ship to ship 
on their backs. Salted cod is still an important element of traditional Portuguese cuisine, although nowadays they get their fish from Norway. Uh, the fisheries were originally a closely guarded trade secret, but by the time of Columbus, um, they were well known. And since cod was usually dried on racks on shore before being carried back to Europe, Columbus and his crew were almost definitely not the first Europeans to make landfall in the Americas after the Viking settlements were abandoned. Columbus's promise to find a sea route to Asia interested European monarchs like Ferdinand and Isabella because land-based trade routes to Asia were becoming more difficult and expensive. Uh, the collapse of the Mongol Empire at the end of the 13th century and the plagues of the 14th century increased the perceived danger of overland travel. Um, Columbus had failed to interest Portugal in his proposal because Bartolomeu Diaz had already discovered a route to Asia around the bottom of Africa. On the other hand, Spain had recently unified with the marriage of King Ferdinand of Aragon to Queen Isabella of Castile, and the two monarchs and their combined kingdom had just completed the Reconquista and ejected the Muslims from Granada, the last Muslim kingdom on the Iberian Peninsula in 1492. It's worth considering that as they turned their interests outward, the Spanish had been at war for nearly 800 years. It's also worth noting that the inventions that sparked this new era of exploration and empire building, like the stern post rudder, the compass, gunpowder, and the printing press, were all Chinese inventions that had found their way to Europe over an already existing international trade network that was at the time dominated by Muslim and Arab merchants but it was about to become truly global with the European encounter of the Americas. So Columbus, as we know, arrived in the Caribbean on October 12th, 1492, and explored until late December. His flagship, the Santa Maria, ran aground on Hispaniola on December 25th and had to be abandoned. But with the permission of the local chief, Columbus left 39 sailors behind in a settlement that he named La Navidad because it was founded on Christmas Day. Uh, he returned to Europe with two ships, a few captive Taino natives, some gold, and specimens of New World species, including turkeys and pineapple and tobacco. Arriving in Barcelona in mid-March, Columbus was celebrated as a hero. Now, it's often mentioned that Columbus believed he had reached Asia, and he did make that claim in his extravagant letter on his first voyage. Um, but this document was the explorer's report to his royal sponsors, and Columbus wanted very badly to be sent back again. Columbus wrote, Hispaniola is a miracle, both fertile and beautiful. The harbors are unbelievably good, and there are many wide rivers the majority of which contained gold. That was an exaggeration. Uh, whether or not Columbus understood that he was reporting on lands that were previously unknown to Europeans, he definitely got his readers excited about the places that he had visited. And when other European explorers reached the Americas, they were equally amazed. People throughout Europe 
read exciting travelers' accounts like Amerigo Vespucci's 1504 bestseller Mundus Novus, which actually coins the term New World in its title, uh, and makes it clear to anyone who might still be confused that these lands are not Asia, but a previously unknown continent. Like Columbus, the explorers carried back to Europe not only eyewitness accounts of wealthy civilizations, but samples of native plants, animals, and of captive people. Columbus returned to the Caribbean in 1493 with 17 ships, 1,200 men, and, according to his diaries, seeds and cuttings for the planting of wheat, chickpeas, melons, onions, radishes, salad greens, grapevines, sugar cane, and fruit stones for the founding of orchards. Other Old World crops that thrived in the Americas included coffee and bananas, originally cultivated in Africa and Asia, which were brought from the Canary Islands in 1516. Uh, the Spanish had introduced sugar cultivation to the Canary Islands and the other islands off the North African coast in the early 15th century. Uh, and they transplanted the canes to the new tropical paradise that their explorers had discovered across the Atlantic. Cattle were delivered to Spanish conquistadors in Mexico in 1521. Most of the significant Eurasian species brought to the Americas by European explorers and colonists were introduced by the Spanish in the early 1500s, long before North American settlement began. Even species like the wild horses of the American West that would transform Plains Indian culture in the 18th and 19th centuries were actually descendants of escapees from the herds of the conquistadors. The Americas had very few large mammal species, and most, like the buffalo, could not be domesticated. Uh, nearly all of the species that humans have successfully domesticated, the familiar residents of the modern farmyard, originated in Europe and Asia. And these include goats, sheep, cows, horses, pigs, and chickens. The Spanish and uh, the Portuguese dominated the first century of exploration and conquest and colonization in the Americas for many reasons. Uh, Spain and Portugal had just finished fighting an eight-century-long war in this Reconquista, and so they had this tradition of fighting against the Moors, and they were prepared to continue the battle for glory and religion. Uh, the Portuguese also had a maritime tradition, which was how Columbus learned his trade. Uh, but the two Catholic nations also had a papal charter. The Spanish and Portuguese were granted a license by the Pope under the 1494 Treaty of Tordesillas, which awarded all of the territory east of the 47th meridian to Portugal and everything west of it to Spain. The Pope, Alexander VI, who made this deal was a Spaniard named Rodrigo Borgia. His reign was known for nepotism and corruption. And also, despite a pledge of clerical celibacy, he was the father of the famous Italian political family known for poisoning their enemies, the Borgias. The Portuguese received the East because they were already establishing colonies on both the East and West coasts of Africa and sailing under Africa into the Indian Ocean. The Spanish were assigned the Unknown West, which actually turned out to be much bigger than anyone had expected. 
the Pope granted nothing to any other European kingdom. Uh, this type of corruption at the Vatican helped to motivate reformers like Martin Luther toward what ultimately became the Protestant Reformation. Historians call the transfer of plants and animals that began uh, with uh, this encounter between Europe and the Americas in 1492, the Columbian Exchange. Uh, the directions of these biological transfers and their effects on the environments and the people of both Europe and the Americas shaped the modern world that we live in. American maize and potatoes and cassavas went to Europe and Africa and Asia and fed growing populations, making possible the building of new cities and industries. Uh, European animals such as pigs and sheep and chickens and cattle thrived in the Americas, which enabled both Native Americans and Europeans there to add and to maintain animal protein in their diets uh, and eventually expand their populations. Uh, but before most of the natives had a chance to benefit from the new food sources introduced by Europeans, they were struck down by the largely accidental transfer of viruses and bacteria from Europe to America which caused the deaths of at least 90% of the Native American population. When prehistoric Europeans and Asians and Africans began living in close contact with the species that they domesticated, the people were affected almost as much as the animals that they kept. Most of humanity's major diseases originate in animals and have crossed over history from domesticated species to their human keepers. Whooping cough and influenza came from pigs. Measles and smallpox came from cattle. Malaria and avian flu came from chickens. The people who domesticated these species and lived with the animals for generations co-evolved with them. Animal diseases became survivable when people developed antibodies and immunities. And without the inherited protection that's enjoying enjoyed by most Europeans and Asians and Africans, even routine childhood diseases such as chickenpox can be devastating. The Native Americans did not have any domesticated animals and as a result had very little immunity to these diseases. The introduction of a disease into an area without inherited immunity is called a virgin soil epidemic. Such diseases had happened in Eurasia when the Romans had spread smallpox into the populations that they conquered, uh, and it happened in Europe when the expanding Mongols introduced bubonic plague. The Black Death had killed approximately half to two-thirds of the population of Europe in the 14th century, reducing world population by about 100 million people overall. Virgin soil epidemics spread across the Americas when explorers and colonists and missionaries introduced Eurasian diseases to Native Americans. Uh, the Eurasian diseases that attacked Native populations included smallpox, measles, chickenpox, influenza, typhus, cholera, typhoid, diphtheria, bubonic plague, scarlet fever, whooping cough, and malaria. The impact of these diseases on Native Americans was one of human history's most abrupt and most severe population 
disasters. Even the Black Death in Europe didn't kill as large a percentage of Europeans. And when the diseases recurred in Europe, they generally killed their victims over a much longer time span due to the inherited immunity of European populations. American natives, as I said, had no such safeguards and disease spread virulently. Uh, for example, there were well over a million people living on the Caribbean island of Hispaniola in 1492 when Columbus left his 39 sailors in La Navidad. By 1548, there were only 500 natives left. 999,500 people or more had disappeared in a little over 50 years. The populations of other large Caribbean islands like Cuba were similarly wiped out. Cuba probably had over a million people as well. Whole societies disappeared. And this was not only a tragedy for the cultures like the Taino that vanished. The reduction of native populations began a cycle of violence that has become central to the history of the Americas. Once there were no natives left to work on European sugar plantations, enslaved Africans who had a similar acquired immunity as Europeans were considered crucial to the survival of the West Indies sugar economy. The greater population densities of Central and South America enable these contagious diseases to spread much more quickly there. Heavily traveled roads and trade routes in Central Mexico actually helped spread disease beyond areas that had been reached by Spanish explorers. Cities were wiped out that had never even seen a white man. The population of the Aztec heartland dropped from about 25 million people on the eve of the Spanish conquest in 1519 to just under 17 million a decade later. One out of every three people died in just 10 years. After another decade, the Aztec population was reduced to about 6 million. Three out of four people in the Aztec world disappeared in 20 years. By 1580, the Aztec Empire had been hollowed out to less than 2 million people from a starting point of 25 million. The depopulation of the Americas is one of the Earth's most significant population disasters, both in its human toll and in the changes that it brought about. Over the years, as you might expect, there's been a lot of controversy about what actually happened. Critics of Spanish colonialism, many of them Spanish, like the priest Bartolomé de las Casas, have accused the Spaniards of atrocities in what has become known as the Black Legend. Uh, to defend themselves, colonialists accused the Aztec and the Inca empires with atrocities of their own and have emphasized the support that the conquistadors received from indigenous rivals of these empires. Uh, textbooks often reflect some of these biases, even today. Uh, one, for example, mentions that, quote, allegedly between 20,000 and 80,000 men, women, and children were slaughtered in a single ceremony in 1487, unquote, as a sacrifice at... Uh, an Aztec temple in Tenochtitlan. This claim may be true, or it may not be, but even if it is, 
Compare that to the deaths of over 20 million men, women, and children that followed the Spanish invasion of the Aztec lands of central Mexico. Traditional European or Eurocentric American histories of exploration often present the victory of the Spanish over the Aztec and the Incas as an example and evidence of the superiority of Europeans over the savage Indians. The reality, of course, is far more complex. When Cortes explored central Mexico, for example, he did encounter a region that was simmering with native conflict. Um, far from being unified and content under Aztec rule, many people in Mexico resented the overlords of Tenochtitlan and were ready to rebel. Uh, Cortes was also aided by an enslaved Nahuatl woman named Malinsen, also known as La Malinche or Doña Marina, her Spanish name. Uh, she was a woman that they, or a girl actually, uh, whom the Spanish uh, had received from the natives of Tabasco as a tribute slave. Uh, in addition to speaking Nahuatl and Maya, Malinsen quickly learned Spanish and translated for Cortes in his dealings with the Aztec emperor Moctezuma and then also with the rivals of Tenochtitlan. Malinsen also, willingly or under pressure, entered into a physical relationship with Cortes. Uh, their son, Martin, was one of the first mestizos, or people of uh, mixed indigenous American and European descent in Spanish America. Uh, Malinsen remains a controversial figure in the history of the Atlantic world. Uh, some people view her as a traitor, because she helped Cortes to conquer the Aztecs, while others see her as a victim of European imperialism, whose choices were very limited. In either case, she demonstrates one way in which native peoples responded to the arrival of the Spanish. Without her, Cortes would not have been able to communicate, and without the language bridge, he surely would have been less successful in destabilizing the Aztec Empire. The Inca Empire in the Andes suffered exactly the same fate as the Aztecs. 90% of the South Americans died. And they started dying before the white invaders arrived in 1532, which caused a lot of confusion and dismay. When Pizarro crossed the Andes with 80 conquistadors, he found social chaos. Huayna Capac the Inca leader who had triumphantly extended the empire into Chile in the south and Ecuador in the north, had died of smallpox in Quito in 1527. His two sons then fought a brutal civil war for control of the empire. The younger son, Atahualpa, finally defeated and assassinated his older brother, Huascar. The Civil War was exacerbated by the effects of the epidemics and the weakness of the reduced Inca population gave Pizarro the opportunity that he needed to capture and to kill Atahualpa in 1533, which was the beginning of the end of the Inca Empire. Although the conquistadors focused most of their energy on Central and South America, they brought disease into North America as well. After helping Pizarro conquer the Inca, 
Hernando de Soto landed an expedition in Florida in 1539. And he explored territory in what's now the states of Georgia, North and South Carolina, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, and Oklahoma. Everywhere he went, the conquistador reported that the land was thickly settled with large towns. De Soto didn't stay long. He died of a fever in what's now Louisiana in 1542. And although the region was visited by a few missionaries, it wasn't seriously considered again by Europeans until the French aristocrat La Salle traveled down the Mississippi River in 1670. Where De Soto had seen fortified towns, La Salle saw nothing. The entire region had been emptied by the diseases which had accompanied De Soto and his men and had returned to wilderness. The French explorer reported traveling hundreds of miles without passing a single village. Historians were actually unaware until recently that the American South had once been very heavily populated before the arrival of contagious Spanish explorers and missionaries. Spanish invaders had not deliberately infected the natives with all of these diseases. Europeans still had no idea at this time how viruses or bacteria worked. But they were quick to take advantage of the opportunities presented by the social chaos and the military weakness of these native societies in crisis. In both Mexico and Peru, the conquistadors found allies among different indigenous groups who often thought of themselves initially as the victors with just Spanish help rather than the other way around. Even so, within a few years, the Spaniards took over the capital cities of the Inca and Aztec empires and built their own colonial capitals on them. And they inserted themselves into the top positions in the pre-existing governments. Patterns of tribute were maintained uh, as well as the labor draft of the Inca Mita, although now the labor would be devoted to the silver mines and not just to road and irrigation and building projects. As they had in Spain during the Reconquista, conquistadors were rewarded for military service with encomiendas. comes from a root word meaning entrusting. Uh, so the encomiendas were grants of captured territory, and also of the people who lived on it, uh, who the encomendero was theoretically responsible for bringing into the Christian community. Uh, this technique had been used in Spain to keep track of conquered Muslims and make sure that they didn't backslide after their forced conversion to Christianity. In Spanish America, there was much more emphasis on uh, taxing and working the new peasants rather than on leading them to religion. But let's look briefly at what happened in Europe as well. As I previously mentioned, uh, American staple crops were successfully adopted by farmers in Europe and Asia and Africa, which provided better and more reliable nutrition and sparked a population boom. New foods like potatoes were so important in preventing the cyclical famines that had regularly hit Europe that they became a key topic in Adam Smith's classic on the wealth of nations. Uh, many plant species developed by Native Americans are still crucial in the world economy, 
including not only maize and potatoes and cassava, but also tomatoes, sweet potatoes, cocoa, chili peppers, natural rubber, tobacco, and vanilla. Quinine, a medicine made from the bark of the Peruvian cinchona tree, was effective in treating malaria and helped open not only the Americas, but African and Asian tropics to European colonization. And then Eurasian plants like sugar and soybeans and oranges and bananas and rice, which probably reached America from Africa, along with the enslaved women who were experts at growing it. These were also extensively cultivated in the Americas for shipment back to European markets. Exports of native and transplanted crops helped to feed growing cities. And by the mid 18th century, freed many agricultural workers to enter Europe's new industries. Without inexpensive and abundant Native American foods, there might have been no industrial revolution. Like the Portuguese in their exploration of Africa, the Spanish were also interested in finding sources of gold and silver for European commerce. Although they never found El Dorado, the golden man that had expanded into legends of a city of gold, uh, the Europeans did find a fair amount of gold, and they found even more silver. For example, the Bolivian city of Potosí, located in the Andes at an elevation of 13,420 feet, still has the largest population of any city of that altitude. Potosí was established by the Spanish in 1542 on the site of a long-standing native mining village at the foot of a mountain called the Cerro Rico, which is literally a mountain of silver. Potosí has a current population of about 165,000, which is almost identical to the city's population in 1660, when the high-altitude mining center was larger than Seville, Madrid, or even Rome, and when the entire combined population of all European colonies in North America was only about 75,000. Spanish silver coins called Pieces of Eight from the Cerro Rico and from similar mines in Zacatecas, Mexico, were so plentiful that they became the international currency of Europe and of much of Asia. Every year between 1566 and 1815, a treasure fleet sailed from Acapulco to Manila in the Philippines, laden with silver for trade in China and India. Another fleet carried not only precious metals, but spices and expensive Chinese ceramics and silks acquired in Asia from Veracruz on the eastern coast of Mexico to Cadiz in Spain. Once again, products originating in the Americans were a spur to the Industrial Revolution. Without the money minted in Latin America from the silver mines of Potosí, and Zacatecas, there might have been no global commercial boom to finance European industrialization. And Potosí's story is not even over yet, although most of the easily extractable silver was taken out of the mountain centuries ago, the Cerro Rico is still being worked by Bolivian children, whose story is told in the award-winning documentary The Devil's Miner, which you can view on the web if you're interested in learning more.
Because most of the Spanish in the New World were male soldiers uh, in the first decades of the conquest, uh, women were taken, often forcibly, from native communities to be wives and mistresses. Uh, one high-ranking surviving Inca native named Felipe Guaman Poma de Ayala wrote to the King of Spain around 1600, complaining that Spaniards were taking all the Indian women of childbearing age. So the place was being flooded with mestizo children who were not required to work the way the Indians were. Worse, he said, the fathers were not supporting these illegitimate children. And uh, to quote, if a Spaniard steals away four Indian women to make little mestizos, he will bribe the judges and refuse to recognize his paternity, which left their support to the state. Uh, Spaniards ought to live like Christians, Guaman argued marrying ladies of equal status and leaving the poor Indian women alone so they can have Indian children. Uh, most of the countries of Latin America are built on mixed or mestizo populations. So much so that in the 1700s, the colonists tried to make distinctions between all of the various levels of people that they believed made up their societies uh, to prove to the Spanish crown that a logical caste system existed in the colonies. Uh, although these distinctions are somewhat arbitrary and were often just used to uphold the power of the group at the top, in the long run, many of these mixed Euro-American populations have developed strong ethnic identities. A similar process happened in New France, today's Quebec in Canada. Uh, there were only about 2,500 French people in the province in 1663, and most of them were voyageurs the fur traders who went out into the northern forests to make their fortunes. Voyagers frequently married local Native women, and many of their Canadian descendants are now uh, recognized as a distinct ethnocultural group called Métis. The social caste system developed in Latin America was based on both blood and origin. At the top were peninsulares, uh, Spaniards born in Spain on the Iberian Peninsula, uh, who were appointed to nearly all of the important administrative positions in government and to the highest clerical offices, archbishops and bishops. Next were the criollos, creoles, uh, Spaniards also, but born in the colonies. And they made up the landed elite, and they were often descendants of the original encomenderos, they were also a, a vast majority of the merchant class and some of the higher clergy. Beneath them were the mestizos, people of mixed race, who worked as artisans uh, and in the lower clergy, or who farmed on either their own, their own small holdings or on the estates of the Creole landowners. Indians were below mestizos, um, and although they did often manage their own communities, often under the supervision of missionary priests, uh, tribute and labor obligations required them to work in the wage economy managed by the Spanish. Uh, later, when the colonists started importing African slaves, new designations like mulatto and zambo were developed to describe the children of black-white or black Indian unions. Uh, these new mixed populations often played a similar role in the economy and society as the mestizos, um, although they were located closer to the sugar-growing regions to which enslaved Africans were initially brought. 
The Portuguese were initially more interested in dominating trade routes in the Indian Ocean. So they mostly ignored their new possession in Brazil until French Huguenots, Protestant Christians who were fleeing Catholic France, tried to establish a colony near present-day Rio de Janeiro in the mid-1500s. Uh, by that time, the Portuguese had watched the Spanish become successful, cultivating sugarcane in the Caribbean. Sugar, which both the Spanish and the Portuguese had learned to grow and process in the Middle East during the Crusades, was already being grown with enslaved African labor on profitable plantations in Spain and Portugal's island colonies off the African coast. Portuguese entrepreneurs brought cane and slaves to Brazil and set up plantations along the northern coast. Uh, by this time, the Catholic Church had prohibited the enslavement of Indians, but not of Africans. The native Brazilians in the Amazon region uh, didn't have the same complex society that the Spanish had found in Mexico and Central America and in the Andes in South America. So it was actually harder for the Portuguese to conquer them as they were able to escape deep into the interior. However, the Spanish already had established colonies and trade ties in Africa, uh, which soon supplied enslaved labor to their sugar plantations. By the mid-1500s in Europe, Spanish wealth was beginning to cause problems. Wealthy Spanish nobles married into aristocratic families like the Austrian Habsburgs. By 1519, the same year that Cortes attacked Tenochtitlan and that Magellan set out to circle the earth, the grandson of Ferdinand and Isabella, Charles V, became Holy Roman Emperor. Charles was also King of Spain uh, and by marriage of Portugal, which gave him legal control over all of the American colonies. When his wife Isabella died in 1555, Charles was inconsolable. He abdicated in 1556 and retired to a monastery, leaving his younger brother Ferdinand in charge of the Holy Roman Empire in Europe and his son Philip II in control of Spain and Portugal and all of their possessions in the Americas and the Spanish Netherlands on the European coast. Although Philip II has been called the prudent, um, and although he was also briefly King of England while he was married to Queen Mary, known as Bloody Mary, um, after she died in 1558, he lost control of the rebellious Protestant Dutch Republic uh, and Spain declared bankruptcy five times. Spain's financial troubles were partly due to the debts that Philip's father, Charles V, had accumulated as Holy Roman Emperor. And after um, Queen Mary's death, Philip proposed to her successor, Elizabeth I, who turned him down. Elizabeth's father, King Henry VIII, had separated the Church of England from Rome in the 1530s, after a dispute with the Pope over the annulment of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, and the aunt of Charles V. 
Philip supported the claim of Mary, Queen of Scots, to the British throne. Uh, but then when she was executed in 1587, Philip decided to invade England and uh, to return it to Catholicism. In 1588, the Spanish Armada, organized by Philip, uh, was hampered by bad weather on the English Channel and was then defeated by the British Royal Navy in a battle uh, in which the British lost no ships while Spain lost five before withdrawing. So during the retreat, though, most of the Spanish Navy was then wiped out by storms, which left the British, sort of accidentally, in control of the Atlantic. Later that year, the British fleet sailed into the harbor at Cadiz and burned 200 more Spanish ships and made off with the annual silver shipment. This was the beginning of the end of the Spanish Empire as a major European power. Another reason that Spain didn't permanently dominate the European economy was that for centuries, most of the silver that they shipped from Peru and from Mexico ended up in China, where silver was the basis of the Earth's largest economy. Buoyed by China's economic dominance, the Asian population increased from 60% of the world's people in 1500 to 67% in 1800. In addition to the Mings in China, the Mughals in India ultimately ruled an empire of 150 million people. And they also were very interested in expanding trade with the West. India was also highly productive. Between these two empires, Asia produced 80% of all the world's goods. Even though we're concentrating in this chapter on the Atlantic world and the intersection of Africa with Europe and the Americas, until the mid-1700s, it's important to remember that China and India dominated world commerce and industry. Chinese silks and Indian cottons, for example, were the world's best quality and lowest cost textiles. And clothes made from them were worn throughout the world, even in Spain's colonies, which by law required people to trade only with the home country. The traditional costume of Mexico to this day is called the China Poblana. It was originally a contraband silk dress worn by women of the towns. Uh, the British were also so intimidated by Asian textiles that they imposed tariffs to try to protect their own weavers from being driven out of business. Mercantilism, in which the colonies serve the home country as both a market and as a source of raw materials in a closed economy, wasn't actually a primitive economic system that evolved into free market capitalism. It was an attempt to shield British and European merchants from an already existing international free market in which they were too often the losers to the dominant Asian powers. And we'll return to this idea in later chapters. But that is all for now. So I hope this gave you a better understanding of this collision of the Americas with the people of Europe and Africa. 
Thanks for listening. I'll see you again next time.